Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. As always, today we are going to be talking about one of my favorite books on the subject of EMF radiation. It's called The Invisible Rainbow, A History of Electricity and Life by Arthur Furstenberg. Came out in 2017. It's a big book. It's jammed full of information. So we're not going to summarize the entire book here. But when I read this book and when my wife read this book shortly after me, this is about two years ago, we both saved a bunch of pages and points and we're going to talk about them today. And she is here with me today, my lovely wife, Sherry Hand commonly known as Sherry. We have not done an episode together in a long time, but it was her and I who made the original episodes for this podcast, which are no longer up now because that was before the podcast got taken down. So this is our first solo episode here, Sherry, since the relaunch. Hey, I'm so happy to be recording this with you. Yes. And you read this book right after me. What did you think about it? Because I know you were pretty skeptical on the EMF thing. You thought I was pretty nuts about it. There was a lot of information in there. First of all, the book is like condensed with information. Um, but um, there was a, a few things that kind of blew my mind. I, I was like very shocked to learn um, about a few points that were in there. It was very informative. I'm still skeptical about certain um, diseases being actually caused by EMF, just EMF. It just it opened up a whole new world for me in terms of like about how diseases are actually come about. Yeah, I agree. I've read a lot of books on this subject, and this was the most comprehensive. It covered the most ground. I can't say I agree with every single point in here, but overall, I think it was very, very good. And I put it on my mandatory reading list for that reason. A lot of books about EMF are either too complicated or insufficient, too short, not well explained enough. This book was the perfect balance, I think. And I definitely don't think that EMF is the only cause of disease, but... There's a strong correlation. It contributes. It plays a role in your immune system and how it deals or your body, how it deals with it, with the disease. Yeah, I agree. You're overall weaker. 
But there is a problem with the correlation here because when we became electrified, we also industrialized the food system and our lives changed big time. So there's a lot of things like pesticides and uh, mechanical pulverization of flowers and all, all this stuff that corresponded with us gaining electricity. We also stopped using wood ash, which was humanity's primary supplement for plant-derived minerals because the plant sucks up the minerals and when you burn away the carbon, you're just left with the plant-derived minerals. But we stopped using wood as our primary fuel for cooking and heating when we had electricity. So there's lots of correlations here. There's modern medicine, which really began to rise after electrification. So we can't blame it all on electricity, but they're definitely... As you said, Sherry, it definitely does contribute to a weaker body, in my opinion. In my experience working with lots and lots of people, in this case, hundreds of people with EMF and anti-EMF devices, you can see an immediate result when you add or take away EMF from someone's body with any muscle or strength or balance test that you want to throw at it. So that has to add up to a big burden on the body over time. I, I, I agree with you with what you just said, especially the point where there is an issue here, right? You can't, like you said, you can't blame everything on EMF because when the world started to be electrified, if that's the right, the word electrified, I guess, when it, um, a lot of other things came into the picture as well. Like you said, processed foods, um, pharmaceuticals, like a lot of things were coming into the picture. It's not just electrification of, of the world. 100%. And before we get into the very first point that I saved in this book when reading it the first time, I just want to remind everybody, you can find everything that I do on notusbooks.org. That's all the books that I've written and helped publish. Most of them are about health. Hundreds of book reviews. Many of them are about EMF here. You can see the free audiobook versions of my books and an archive of this podcast where you can download the episodes for free. And there's actually a special treat at the end of those episodes if you stick around all the way to the end. Big thank you to the patrons supporting this podcast. We have no ad revenue here or anything like that. We do sell supplements for a living, but we have no paid sponsorships or anything like that. Once again, you can see everything that we do, including all of our different channels. We're most active on Instagram, a few YouTube accounts, and so on. You can find all of that on notusbooks.org. So the first point I saved here, we're back in the 1800s. 1881, where some of the biological effects of electricity were first being written about. So if you hear that in modern times, someone saying, oh, there's not that much data here on electricity having biological effect. Well, it's definitely been studied and written about since at least the 1800s. So at the same time electricity was coming out, so was the noticed biological effects and clinical effects. And back here in 1881, they were even talking about electrosusceptibility, how it might run in families. They said women, on average, were a little more susceptible to electricity than men. And active adults between 20 and 50 bore electricity more poorly than at other ages. So they tolerated it better when they were younger and older. And there were some people who were insensitive to the electrical energy. They were frustrated that there was no way to predict whether a person was sensitive to electricity or not. Some women, they observed, even those who are exquisitely delicate can bear enormous doses of electricity, while some men who are very hardy can bear none at all. Obviously, electricity is not, as so many modern doctors would have it, those who recognize that it affects our health at all, an ordinary kind of stressor. And it is a mistake to assume that one's vulnerability to it is an indicator of one's state of health. So they're saying, you could be healthy otherwise, 
but completely susceptible to electricity. Or you could be very unhealthy and it not bother you at all. It's not predictable. And the authors of this textbook back in 1881, Medical and Surgical Electricity, did not give any estimates of the number of people who were sensitive. But in 1892, August Morrill reported that 12% of healthy subjects had a low threshold for at least the auditory effects of electricity. In other words, 12% of the population was, and presumably still is, able in some way to hear unusually low levels of electric current. So they were showing all the way back then, Cherry, that it had at least some effect and at least some people were sensitive to it. Yeah, and I find it very interesting that they say that women are more susceptible than men. I, I actually wonder why. Why would that be the case? I don't know. And I didn't save this part, too. But I was also very interested that even all the way back when they were experimenting with the first batteries and stuff, that people were reporting effects from it upon their first exposures. So here, back in 1903, Dr. E. Kronbach in Berlin gave case histories for 17 of his telegraphist patients. We hear this all the time, too. You know, I have a cell phone tower account on Instagram. And many times I've had climbers and other telecom workers tell me, yeah, but we work around this stuff all the time. And I don't know anyone with cancer or anything like that. Well, they've been doing the epidemiology about this since at least 1903. Well, there's a story in the book where a woman was working um, with computers, I think. I don't know if you saved that part, but um, she got sick. She got very, very ill and she didn't make the connection. I don't remember what her job was, but she was surrounded by um, basically EMF. And he's also mentioning here that people have also been using light energy, using sunlight, arc light, incandescent light, fluorescent light, x-rays, radioactive elements, also since the 1800s, right? So people have been using electricity and light to see if there's biological effects for different forms of treatment. And here with these 17 telegraphist patients, six had either excessive perspiration, sweating a lot, or extreme dryness of hands, feet, or body. Five had insomnia. Five had deteriorating eyesight. These are people who work with telegraphs all day. Five had tremors of the tongue. Four had lost a degree of their hearing. Three had irregular heartbeats. Ten were nervous and irritable both at work and at home. Our nerves are shattered, wrote an anonymous telegraph worker in 1905, and the feeling of vigorous health has given way to a morbid weakness, a mental depression, a lead in exhaustion. Hanging always between sickness and health, we are no longer whole, but only half men. As youths, we were already worn out old men, for whom life has become a burden. Our strength prematurely sapped, our senses, our memory dulled, our impressionability curtailed. These people knew the cause of their illness. Has the release of electrical power from its slumber, asked the anonymous worker, created a danger for the health of the human race? Can I mention that in the beginning, though, people were actually using it as for fun? Yeah, they were using it for fun and for a treatment, too. Even here, in 1882, Edmund Robinson encountered a similar awareness among his telegraphist patients from the general post office at Leeds. But he suggested treating them with electricity, and they declined. They didn't want to do that. They were having problems with electrical sensitivity, and he wanted to treat them with electricity. And here, I think, is where the book uh, starts to get juicy, where he's giving a correlation between a new electrification of something, a new industry like the telegraph wires or television, some new technology, and that corresponding with outbreaks of the flu. And this might be what the book is actually most famous for. This has been written about in other books as well, like The Truth About Contagion by Thomas Cohen, where they're basically blaming 
EMF for causing the flu. And there's a pretty interesting case here. Yeah, I find that interesting as well, especially the way it's actually, they say that it's not contagious. One point that I read, it says that basically the when you are in closed space, it's the virus is spread from droplets from your respiratory. But then if you're in like an open space, it's not how it's spread. I, 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 I still can't comprehend how, like, I don't understand it because to me, I grew up all my life knowing that it's contagious and we get it, it spreads from one person to another. But in the book, it actually argues against that, that it's not contagious that way. Well, you can get bacteria, you can contaminate person to person, but the flu is supposed to be about a virus. And yeah, these terrain theory people say that the virus is the result of the illness. It's not the cause of it. It's something your body produces when it's responded to an illness. But one of the strong points in here, they're talking about how basically instantaneously a lot of these flu pandemics of the past spread like one moment they were in this part of the world, but then at the same time, it was uh, in another part of the world, which won't make sense if you're trying to say it spread with these people on ships or whatever, if it's person to person, it's not traveling across the world. So here in 1889, as if the heavens had suddenly opened up as well, doctors in the Americas, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia were overwhelmed by a flood of critically ill patients suffering from a strange disease that seemed to have come like a thunderbolt from nowhere a disease that many of these doctors had never seen before. The disease was influenza, the flu, and that pandemic lasted four continuous years and killed at least one million people. Suddenly and inexplicably, influenza, whose descriptions had remained consistent for thousands of years, changed its character in 1889. Flu had last seized most of England in November 1847, over half a century earlier. The last flu epidemic in the United States had raged in the winter of 1874-1875. Since ancient times, influenza had been known as a capricious, unpredictable disease, a wild animal that came from nowhere, terrorized whole populations at once without warning and without a schedule, and disappeared as suddenly and mysteriously as it had arrived. Not to be seen again for years or decades. It behaved unlike any other illness, was thought not to be contagious, and received its name because its comings and goings were said to be governed by the influence of the stars. But in 1889, influenza was tamed. From that year forward, it would be present always in every part of the world. It would vanish mysteriously as before, but it could be counted on to return at more or less the same time the following year. And it has never been absent since. So before 1889, it would come about every few years, every few decades or longer. But now it's here all the time. What's the argument, though? Like, can you like explain it in much easier language in terms of like how it's spread? The argument is that now that there's electrification, anywhere that there's electrification, they are suddenly brought down a notch in terms of their immune system. And so they are more likely to fall to the microbes that are always around us. We always have bad bacteria around us and fungus and mold and all kinds of parasites and pathogens. But normally we're able to keep all of them at bay. What are you really get? What's the sickness, though? Like, what is really the illness that when you're getting ill? The sickness is your body falling to the pathogens that are already inside of you all the time. Because your immune system is weak, not because. Not because you caught anything. You didn't get any new microbe. Okay. So to substantiate that, back in 1992, they're talking about a book written here by one of the authorities on epidemiology of influenza. R. Edgar Hope Simpson, lots of names, published a book 
and he reviewed the essential facts and noted that they did not support a mode of transmission by direct human-to-human contact. And he had a lot of questions here. Why is influenza seasonal? Why is it almost completely absent except during the few weeks or months of an epidemic? Why do the epidemics end? Well, they have an argument about in the summer, you don't get sick because it's hot. I guess the virus doesn't really survive in the heat. Well, yeah, when you're sick, your body raises the temperature as well to kill pathogens, basically. Yeah. That's why you get the fever. You're saying, why does the flu so often target young adults and spare infants and the elderly? That's another interesting one as well. For example, when we got the the COVID thing, kids weren't getting affected, but adults were, which is strange because kids' bodies are more vulnerable than adults are because their immune system is not fully developed yet. So I found that very interesting as well. Well, remember in that uh, documentary, we just watched The Antidote on Rumble, which was very, very good, very interesting, very mind-blowing about COVID. Got me fully rethinking everything I ever knew about COVID. They basically claimed in The Antidote that the pandemic was caused by snake poison, snake venom. And the reason that children didn't get sick is because they produce higher levels of melatonin. And, and dogs and cats and stuff too. They produce more melatonin, the sleep chemical, the sleep hormone. But melatonin is also a powerful antioxidant. And apparently it's very effective against the effects of snake venom. So that's why they were not susceptible to that pandemic. This book is often used to prop up the theory that the pandemic was actually caused by 5G radiation because 5G was turned on in Wuhan right before the pandemic. And then, of course, it was being turned on in various cities around the world during the pandemic but i would uh, argue against that because i live in the deep country there's no 5g here and yet obviously there's more to it because they were finding cases up here supposedly so you've got you know faulty testing and all kinds of things but you definitely did have people getting sick as well and this isn't about the pandemic just saying that flu pandemics over time in history have a lot of questions about them especially how they're able to pop up in different places extremely quickly. And they're even talking here about a lot of people correlating it to sunspots as well. When sunspots were happening, people were getting sick. Yeah, can you actually explain that a little bit more? I'm not an expert on sunspots, but it's very, very interesting that sunspots are an indicator of the sun's intensity. And this kind of uh, throws a lot of the climate change thing out the window too, where governments want to uh, change our behavior because we might change the climate, whereas sunspots seem to correlate with massive shifts in the climate, talking about ice ages and hot periods. So one 1% change in the sun can just massively change the climate, whereas we could, you know, completely rewire our entire world and hardly make a dent in it, because if there's a few more sunspots, we're kind of screwed either way. So people have been uh, studying the sun for hundreds of years, And here, one of the points they make about sunspots is it is of interest that between 1645 and 1715, a period called the Maunder Minimum, when the sun was so quiet that virtually no sunspots were to be seen and no auroras graced polar nights, during which, according to native Canadian tradition, the people were deserted by the lights from the sky. No more northern lights. And there were no worldwide pandemics of the flu. In 1715, sunspots reappeared suddenly after a lifetime's absence. It wasn't until 1727 that the sunspot number surpassed 100 for the first time in over a century. 
and in 1728, influenza arrived in waves over the surface of the earth. The first flu pandemic in almost 150 years. It appeared on every continent, became more violent in 1732, and by some reports lasted until 1738, the peak of the next solar cycle. But here's the point that I saved on this page. If influenza is primarily an electrical disease, a response to an electrical disturbance of the atmosphere, then it is not contagious in the ordinary sense. The patterns of its epidemic should prove this, and they do. For example, the deadly 1889 pandemic began in a number of widely scattered parts of the world. Severe outbreaks were reported in May of that year simultaneously in Bukhara, Uzbekistan, Greenland, and northern Alberta. Completely different places, obviously. Simultaneously, they were reported as outbreaks. Flu was reported in July in Philadelphia and in Hilston, a remote town in Australia, and in August in the Balkans. This pattern being at odds with the prevailing theories, many historians have pretended that the 1889 pandemic didn't really start until it had seized the western steeps of Siberia at the end of September, and that it then spread in an orderly fashion from there outward through to the rest of the world, person to person by contagion. But the trouble is that the disease still would have had to travel faster than the trains and ships of the time. It reached Moscow and St. Petersburg during the third or fourth week of October, but by then, influenza had already been reported in Durban, South Africa, and in Edinburgh, Scotland. New Brunswick, Canada, Cairo, Paris, Berlin, and Jamaica were reporting epidemics in November. And he lists a bunch more cities as they developed, but he finishes with, Influenza struck explosively and unpredictably, over and over in waves until early 1894. It was as if something fundamental had changed in the atmosphere, as if brush fires were being ignited by some unknown vandal randomly everywhere in the world. So they were all just popping up. And I saved some old uh, opinions here. This one's from 1808, A Brief History of the Influenza. Perhaps no disease has ever been observed to affect so many people in so short a time as the influenza. Almost a whole city, town, or neighborhood becoming affected in a few days indeed much sooner than could be supposed to spread from contagion. Mercatus relates that when it prevailed in Spain in 1557, the greatest part of the people were seized in one day. Dr. Glass says when it was rife in Exeter in 1729, 2,000 were attacked in one night. And by the way, Sherry, if anyone's blaming sunspots, it would be because the sun's energy can affect us just like the electrical energy can as well. So if that disturbs us on the cellular level, like EMF does, then that will affect our immune system. All our immune system is made of cells. Different cells are more resistant than other ones. So are you saying that, say, for example, Texas is really hot, especially in the summer, like it's 120 degrees. Does it affect us? Because I tend to feel like I get more anxiety in the summer here. My anxiety is really heightened here. Well, we did an ION episode recently, Luke and I, and we talked about how it's so humid in Houston that that's one of the reasons I think it's, uh, it is agitating there. It is irritating there because there's all the water molecules, particles in the air, and they carry electricity, basically. They conduct electricity. The sun is blasting. So you're saying it's the humidity or is it the sun? The humidity. So it's not the sun. I don't think it is the sun. If anything, from the beginning of the pandemic, they were telling us that heat was good for us because it kept the virus at bay. So in summer, everyone expected there to not be a pandemic, basically. We, we have to wait till winter for so-called flu season to come back. We all know that warmth is supposed to be good for infections. On a regular day where it's beautiful, 
it's 70, 80 degrees, you can kind of tell the radiation coming from the sun, whereas when it's like 120 degrees, their radiation is completely different. So I don't know. I, I feel like, in my opinion, that might have some truth to it, that the sun can. It could. All right. The next uh, quote I saved here from 1827, the Philadelphia Journal of the Medical and Physical Sciences. The simple fact is to be recollected that this epidemic affects a whole region in the space of a week. Nay, a whole continent as large as North America, together with all the West Indies, in the course of a few weeks, where the inhabitants over such a vast extent of country could not, within so short a lapse of time, have had the least communication or intercourse whatsoever. This fact alone is sufficient to put all the idea of its being propagated by contagion from one individual to another out of the question. It's from a medical doctor, Alexander Jones. So back in 1827, he was saying that you got a whole region in a week or a whole continent and a bunch of islands in a few weeks. This doesn't lend credibility to the contagion theory, person to person contact theory, because this is just too vast a territory. A lot of these communities are isolated and stuff. What are they blowing from the wind from hundreds of miles away? Another one here, 1852, another MD from the annals of the influenza. Unlike cholera, it outstrips in its course the speed of human intercourse. It means it travels faster than humans can interact with each other. Another one here, 1893, another MD. Contagion alone is inadequate to explain the sudden outbreak of the disease in widely distant countries at the same time and the curious way in which it has been known to attack the crews of ships at sea where communication with infected places or persons was out of the question. How does it get the boats out to sea? Just saying that in the 1800s, people were questioning this. People have been questioning this for a long time. How do epidemics travel so fast? If it's in London and, and then there's like an ocean somewhere around... Could it be that that same people that are in the boat visited a place that the people in London visited? You get what I'm saying? Only if there's a super long dormant period. Well. So I'm not going to read all the quotes here. There's some from 1949, 1976, 85, 2008. People have been questioning this a long time. How does the flu travel faster than humans? Well, when you and I got sick, let's let's put that. Okay, so at the time, people at my daughter's school were getting sick, and then I got sick, or you got sick. I don't remember who got sick first, and then we we basically both got sick. Um, I think we would have contracted a bacteria. Bacteria can be tra- can be transported person to person. You can be contagious with a bacteria. The flu is they say it's caused by a virus. Yeah. Next point I saved here. It's actually about a whole page. A large rapid qualitative change in the Earth's electromagnetic environment has occurred six times in history. In 1889, powerline harmonic radiation began. From that year forward, the Earth's magnetic field bore the imprint of powerline frequencies and their harmonics. In that year, the natural magnetic activity of the Earth began to be suppressed. This has affected all life on Earth. The powerline age was ushered in by the 1889 pandemic of influenza. In 1918, the radio era began. It began with the building of hundreds of powerful radio stations at low frequency and very low frequencies. The frequencies that are guaranteed to most alter the magnetosphere. The radio era was ushered in by the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918. Of course, very famous pandemic, 1918. Well, that's the beginning of the radio era. In 1957, the radar era began. 
It began with the building of hundreds of very powerful early warning radar stations that littered the high latitudes of the northern hemisphere, hurling millions of watts of microwave energy skyward. Low-frequency components of these waves rode on the magnetic field lines to the southern hemisphere, polluting it as well. The radar era was ushered in by the Asian flu pandemic of 1957. In 1968, the satellite era began. It began with the launch of dozens of satellites whose broadcast power was relatively weak. But since they were already in the magnetosphere, they had as big an effect on it as the small amount of radiation that managed to enter it from sources on the ground. The satellite era was ushered in by the Hong Kong flu pandemic of 1968. The other two mileposts of technology, the beginning of the wireless era and the activation of the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, or HARP, belong to very recent times and will be discussed later in the book. So those are some pretty massive pandemics, Sherry, all coinciding with a brand new frequency-based technology. Now, the next point I saved is actually something I don't agree with. He's talking about how zinc, dietary zinc, it's an essential mineral. He's talking about how it may make the problem worse. And to be honest with you, I didn't really understand the case that he was making here. I read this section a couple of times, didn't really get it. And from the way that I do understand it, I disagree with it. But I think we should skip that part here. I'm going to say there's lots of reasons. Kind of elaborate on the zinc one, though. Like I I know you want to skip it because you don't agree with it, but just you know. And I do believe it's not true either because at the time when I was reading the book, I stopped taking zinc because he says the the environment is loaded with zinc. You don't really need that much zinc. And I actually I stopped taking zinc, and then I kind of found that my nails were getting all these spots on them because I wasn't taking zinc. So I, I I don't believe it's true either. But anyways, just since you already mentioned it. Well, he's saying that there uh, was a doctor here, Henry Peters, back in the 50s. He believed that many of his patients were actually zinc poisoned. And at least 5 to 10% of the population may also be zinc poisoned. Meaning that the zinc is everywhere. Yeah, well, as you are a case study of, there's some very obvious symptoms of zinc deficiency. And of course, it can be measured in blood or hair. Hair is more reliable. But you had the white spots on the nails, and that's one of the telltale signs of zinc deficiency. Some people believe it's calcium, but you can try this and see. And we do this all the time. People have the white spots, and they got to take zinc yeah, to get I was rid of it. Taking calcium, and no, it didn't go away. And then until I started taking high doses of zinc, and it's, my nails are completely like I have just one little tiny spot right now that doesn't want to really go away, but it's going. So it's not true that it's calcium. No. So they're saying large amounts of zinc are in fact entering our environment, our homes, and our bodies from industrial processes, galvanized metals, and even the fillings in our teeth. Zinc is in denture cream and in motor oil. There is so much zinc in automobile tires that their constant erosion makes zinc one of the main components of road dust, which washes into our streams, rivers, reservoirs, and eventually getting into our drinking water. Well, that's if you drink tap water, right? You're going to get a different type of exposure if you drink tap water which many of us don't motor oil what are we talking about here denture cream i don't have denture cream and i get it there's a lot of road dust but i don't think this is a problem in my life and i can see when i get zinc deficiency as well i'll start to develop the white spots as well and you'll notice you know immune weakness primarily but zinc is used in so many things in our body that there's so many different systems that could fail if you don't have enough zinc, and of course, zinc deficiency causes birth defects as well. This is well borne out in animals and humans as well. So I'm not doubting that there is such a thing as zinc toxicity, but 
I'm not blaming it on the symptoms of EMF toxicity, if that's what he's doing here. Like I said, this book is so condensed. It's just there's so much information. So, But I do remember him saying they conducted experiments and zinc was part of the experiments. A group of scientists from Brookhaven National Laboratory, the United States Geological Survey, and several universities raised rats on water supplemented with a low level of zinc. By three months of age, the rats already had memory deficits. By nine months of age, they had elevated levels of zinc in their brains. In a human experiment, pregnant women in a slum area of Bangladesh were given 30 milligrams of zinc daily, in the expectation that this would benefit the mental development and motor skills of their babies. The researchers found just the opposite. In a companion experiment, a group of Bangladeshi infants were given 5 milligrams of zinc daily for five months, with the same surprising result. The supplemented infants scored more poorly on standard tests of mental development, and a growing body of literature shows that zinc supplements worsen Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, you see, this is the part where that's why I stopped taking it. I wonder if it's because they were just giving zinc and not the cofactors. Well, I mean, that would be the first thing that I would jump to. There's 90 essential nutrients, at least. They all work together. Yeah. Taking just zinc on its own is not something that I would recommend. 30 milligrams is pretty high, to be honest. I use doses much higher than that, up to 150 milligrams, but short term. And only when we see signs that it might be necessary or when they don't get the expected result from a regular program, zinc is one of the nutrients that I might recommend a mega dose of to see if it works. And often it does, but they don't take that dose forever. And yeah, where, where are the cofactors here? Yeah, exactly. Chelation therapy to reduce zinc improves cognitive functioning in Alzheimer's patient. Okay, so chelation therapy will remove heavy metals, but there's many other metals in there too. I just, I don't know what's being left out of this conversation here. I don't know what doses they were given to the rats. Did they also remove cadmium? and lead and mercury you know other heavy metals that can concentrate in the brain as well with this chelation therapy did they measure those other metals was it just zinc toxicity that was going on here were there other nutrient deficiencies they point out here that blood is not a reliable marker of zinc okay did they look at the hair then and what else did they see on those hair analysis i just i these are referenced i just haven't checked the references here and gone through the whole study i don't know you need lots of other nutrients to keep everything in balance would be my basic stance. So flipping forward to the heart chapter, talking about people dropping dead, suddenly a heart failure, athletes with no history of heart disease. Again, other nutrient deficiencies and such that can cause the modern epidemic of heart disease contribute to it. And here they comb through public records and identified over a thousand American athletes and 38 competitive sports who had suffered Sudden cardiac arrest between 1980 and 2006. In 1980, heart attacks in young athletes were rare. Only nine cases occurred in the United States. The number rose gradually but steadily, increasing about 10% per year until 1996, when the number of cases of fatal cardiac arrest among athletes suddenly doubled in 1996. There were 64 that year and 66 the following year. In the last year of the study, 76 competitive athletes died when their hearts gave out most of them under 18 years of age. The American medical community was at a loss to explain it. But in Europe, some researchers thought they knew the answer. On October 9, 2002, an association of German doctors specializing in environmental medicine began circulating a document calling for a moratorium on antennas and towers used for mobile phone communications. 
Cell phone towers. EMF, they said, was causing a drastic rise in both acute and chronic diseases, prominent among which were extreme fluctuations in blood pressure, heart rhythm disorders, and heart attacks and strokes among an increasingly younger population. And yeah, I would agree overall because nutrition in many ways actually is getting better. There's a growing market for healthy foods, organic foods, supplements. All this stuff has exploded in the last, let's say, 20 years, especially the last 10, 15 years. Awareness about things like gluten and other you know, processed foods, this is at an all-time high. Like the healthy living trend is most definitely in full force, but yet we do see an increasing prevalence of many of these diseases and people dropping dead and stuff. And EMF is one of the main things I blame. When I first started in this business, the people who trained me told me that it used to be easier to help people. Same products used to work better. And we got new and better products now. And still, even when I first started, it used to be easier. It was true. I predicted it when 5G was launching. It happened. When 5G came out, it became harder to help certain people, especially those who are in the cities. And that would be one reason why it was covered in this book as well, why people in the country have always lived longer, basically, on any surveys go back in time. All through the industrial age, people were healthier in the country, away from the cities, for a variety of reasons, including EMF. So what's the point are you you making when you're saying that? We have more awareness these days in terms of like nutrition. I'm saying that the nutritional climate has actually improved a little bit, at least in recent years. Like we can't put minerals back into the soil, but we're not as uh, willfully blind as we used to be. You know, just a lot of us, we're no longer just stopping at McDonald's and grabbing something to eat, you know, or grabbing a bag of chips or something. We're thinking about what we're eating. We're avoiding the serious toxic food. We are supplementing and all this stuff. But yet, it is still more difficult to help people. And I think that's not because of the food environment, which is getting marginally better. It's because of the EMF environment. And here to wrap this point up, they're saying that what could explain the sudden doubling of heart attacks among American athletes in 1996 was that was the year digital cell phones first went on sale in the United States. And the year that cell phone companies began building tens of thousands of cell phone towers to make them work. I, I agree with that, but I just want to do make a point, and you know this already, that the quality of food is not better, actually. I know we make better choices, and we have we do have like a lot of options that I guess claim that they're better in terms of because they say organic on it. But in terms of you, you already said this, and you, this is how you you actually spread your message in terms of like the soil being depleted of its minerals and organic food is actually not really organic food. So Maybe it's it does have something to do with food as well, though. I agree. I was just making the point that there is a big awareness to this now. And even my little grocery store out in the middle of nowhere, my tiny little town, has a decent little health food section just because there is demand for it. We're not all living on Pop-Tarts and, and cereal like we were growing up. Many of us, we, we but, were eating the American diet and then we moved on to eating more healthy. So, yeah, the food supply is not perfect. We're not putting not more minerals perfect. in the and soil. And like when you talk about gluten-free stuff, gluten-free stuff, when you read the back of it, and again, I know you already know this. Um, it's a lot of fillers and stuff that shouldn't actually be in there, especially when you look at bread. It's right? still so junk many... food. It's still junk food, but it is marginally better, at least in the sense that it is providing it to the mass market, that there's better and better alternatives, even if they are lacking in nutrients overall. That's always going to be true. Yeah. 
So here he's talking about Dr. Samuel Milham, which he has a book called Dirty Electricity, and maybe we'll do an episode on his book one day. I, I enjoyed that, read it recently. Samuel Milham. He was an epidemiologist looking at population studies. And here he's talking about his short book here, 2010, suggesting that the modern epidemics of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer are largely, if not entirely, caused by electricity. He included solid statistics to back up these assertions. In his early studies, he had shown that electricians, power line workers, telephone linesmen, aluminum workers, radio and TV repairmen, welders, and amateur radio operators, those whose work exposed them to electricity or electromagnetic radiation, died far more often than the general public from leukemia, lymphoma, and brain tumors. He knew that the new FCC standards were inadequate, and he made himself available as a consultant to those who were challenging them in court. In recent years, Milham turned his skills to the examination of vital statistics from the 1930s and 1940s, when the Roosevelt administration made it a national priority to electrify every farm and rural community in America. What Milham discovered surprised even him. Not only cancer, he found, but also diabetes and heart disease seemed to be directly related to residential electrification. Rural communities that had no electricity had little heart disease until electric service began. They didn't have heart disease until electric service began. In fact, in 1940, country folk in electrified regions of the country were suddenly dying of heart disease four to five times as frequently as those who still lived out of electricity's reach. It seems unbelievable that mortality differences of this magnitude could go unexplained for over 70 years after they were first reported, wrote Milham. He speculated that early in the 20th century, nobody was looking for answers. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But the author of this book, Arthur Furstenberg, he said, when I began reading the early literature, I found that everyone was looking for answers. Some well-known cardiologists here and not able to explain what was happening. One cardiologist here, all he could do was wonder at the fact that coronary heart disease, a disease due to clogged coronary arteries, which is the most common type of heart disease today, had once been so rare that he had seen almost no cases in his first few years of practice. Heart disease had not, however, sprung full-blown from nothing at the turn of the 20th century. It had been relatively uncommon, but not unheard of. The vital statistics of the United States show that rates of heart disease had begun to rise long before this cardiologist graduated from medical school. The modern epidemic actually began quite suddenly in the 1870s, at the same time as the first great proliferation of telegraph wires. So yeah, they're saying that heart disease was extremely rare. And it popped up out of nowhere when they made the telegraph lines. 
And what do you mean by telegraph lines? The, you're talking about those wires in the street? Well, before telephone wires, there was telegraph wires. Same basic concept. Okay. And in the 80s, some researchers here found more heart disease in the city than in the country. But actually, all of the supposed risk factors were higher in the country. So people in the country smoked more, consumed more calories, more cholesterol, more saturated fat than people in the city. People in the city, you know, listen to doctors, basically, and avoid what they're supposed to avoid. So despite that, they still had more heart disease in the city. Well, because they're listening to doctors. Well, yeah, of course, I would I would say that as well. I know this book is all 100% about EMF, but... Yeah. Obviously, listening to doctors, eating margarine instead of butter. Yeah, because you know what? The doctors, like you said, they don't study nutrition. They don't have knowledge about nutrition. They, they usually, like, if you're something, you, your body's going through something, they push medication on you. So definitely the people in the city are going to be more unhealthy if they're listening to doctors. Also, the air quality in countries are different as well. The air quality is much cleaner. So here he's writing about how he actually read the book, uh, The Cholesterol Myths. Sherry, you and I both also read that book. Yeah, Very I bought it after I read this book. Oh, that's yeah. where it came from. I guess that's why I read it, because you had it. And I said, that, yeah. looks, <laughs> that looks good. That was very interesting here. So I saved one point. That was another excellent book, by the way. Yeah, it was. It's worth a deep dive. He also explains that um, before they he wrote this book, he actually was on a different diet that his mom put him on. And it was a low-fat diet. And then um, he read this book, which is The Cholesterol Myth. Basically, his mind was blown because low fat diet was pushed and the low fat is basically was thought was, was to be healthy. Yeah, I agree. And the point that he saved here, they're talking about a study. In other words, cholesterol seemed to have had a protective value and people with very high cholesterol levels lived longer than average. Their mortality rate, however, rose steadily during the late 19th century until it equaled the rate of the general population in about 1915. The mortality of this subgroup continued to rise during the 20th century, reaching double the average during the 1950s and leveling off somewhat. And this was the funny point that I, I saved. One can speculate based on this study that before the 1860s, cholesterol did not cause coronary heart disease. And there's other evidence that this is so. So he's saying, yeah, he's come around to the fact that coronary heart disease must have some other factors involved. Can't be blamed on cholesterol. Well, you, what do you always say? Like the human body, what does it need in order for it to like thrive? Well, you need multiple nutrients. You need at least 90 essential nutrients. But when it comes to heart disease, there's some key ones. Selenium is one of the more important nutrients here. One of the most important minerals in general. I just did a selenium episode. It's not posted at the time of this recording yet, but we'll dive into that as well. But I would also say omega-3. We have qualified health claims from the FDA that you can supplement with omega-3 and it may prevent heart attacks, stroke, various forms of thrombosis. So it's one of the key heart nutrients, cardiovascular system nutrients. And we have a huge problem with omega-3 deficiency in our society. We consume way too much omega-6. And this is a ratio thing. We're supposed to get the same amount of omega-3 and 6. It's supposed to be one-to-one. But in this uh, food system, most Americans get... 10 to 20 times as much omega-6. So this creates an omega-3 deficiency by default. And yeah, heart is going to suffer from that. 
And this omega-3 deficiency correlates also with the rise of industrialization because if animals are fed grains, those grains aren't high omega-3. So the meat's not going to be high omega-3. The milk's not going to be high omega-3. But if they were out there grazing in pasture, they would be getting way more omega-3 in the grasses and the herbs that grow naturally all over the world. What foods would you say have high omega-6? All of the seed oils, all of the processed foods with oils in them, all of the meat, like I just said, that's been grain fed, which is most of it. If you go to a, a burger joint or even a high end restaurant, it's most likely in most places, unless you're in Boulder, Colorado or Los Angeles, where people are really fussy with their health foods and restaurants are there to give you a grass fed beef burger. Most of the vast majority of restaurant food, takeout food is all grain fed. So it's going to be way higher in omega six. This is true with eggs as well. What eggs have high omega-6, you said? Yeah, unless the chickens have been fed food that specifically has omega-3 in it, or they're out there allowed to graze and pasture and bugs. How about for people that are eating, like, you know, like us, we eat for super health, healthy, no oils, none of those processed foods. Is omega-6 still hot, high on in our diet? It still is, yes. Because even grass-fed beef or, or grass-fed eggs or whatever, which we do buy, still... The domesticated animal, the way that we do it, even when it's organic, um, they still have more fat than they're supposed to, more fat instead of more protein. And of course, we all know there's trickery in the labeling. Just because it says grass-fed doesn't mean it's been grass-fed its entire life, doesn't mean it's had it hasn't had other feedlot tactics applied to it, which cause it, again, to gain weight artificially, prematurely, and to be an unhealthy animal in general. It's just it's very tough to get enough omega-3 especially if you're not eating a high seafood diet. So the next point I saved here, mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria is the little organelles in our cells that make energy for us. Mitochondrial dysfunction has been reported in chronic fatigue syndrome and anxiety disorder. Muscle biopsies in these patients show reduced cytochrome oxidase activity. Impaired glucose metabolism is well known in radio wave sickness, as is impairment of cytochrome oxidase activity in animals exposed to extremely low levels of radio waves. That's one thing that I feel, especially when I'm in the city suburbs, and I feel like cold all the time and kind of irritable, like symptoms of low blood sugar, sort of. And I know it's not my blood sugar. My blood sugar is fine, but I feel like my blood sugar is off when I'm around EMF. Recently, a zoologist in India proved elegantly that cellular respiration can be brought to a standstill in honeybees merely by exposing them to a cell phone for 10 minutes. What does that mean? It means that their cells can stop basically producing energy in honeybees just by exposing them to a cell phone for 10 minutes. And in that time, the concentration of carbohydrates in their hemolymph, which is what a blood cell in a bee is called, it rose. After 20 minutes, it rose even more. Glucose content rose, total lipids rose, cholesterol rose in a honeybee. 10 minutes exposure from a cell phone, raised the cholesterol, raised the glucose, raised the total lipids, raised the total protein. In other words, after just 10 minutes of exposure to a cell phone, the bees practically could not metabolize sugars, proteins, or fats. Mitochondria are essentially the same in bees and in humans. But since their metabolism is so much faster, electric fields affect bees much more quickly. In the 20th century, especially after World War II, a barrage of toxic chemicals and EMFs began to significantly interfere with the breathing of our cells. 
The cells aren't able to do their jobs. We know from work at Columbia University that even tiny electric fields alter the speed of electron transport. Do you think that maybe um, electricity, because when you say, for example, that their glucose levels went up, um, their cholesterol levels went up, does it like kind of speed up the process, processes of things? No, I think it impairs it. Here they wrote in 2009, it acts as a force that competes with the chemical forces in a reaction. So it, it interferes with the chemical reactions in the body. Okay. So he's saying, yeah, this pandemic of heart disease that was well underway in the 1950s was the result of being slowly asphyxiated, our cells not able to respirate properly. And unburned fats, together with the cholesterol that transported those fats in the blood, were being deposited on the walls of arteries. It's not from eating cholesterol. He's got a bunch of tables here and graphs about heart disease going up, especially when areas were electrified. And the next point here is one that you saved. As we will see, blaming the rise of diabetes, we're in the diabetes chapter now, on dietary sugars is as unsatisfactory as blaming the rise of heart disease on dietary fats. Yeah, I found that very interesting. And there's a lot to say on sugar. It's also yeah, correlates. The we argument have... is we the consumption of sugar just rose, but in this book, he he actually argues that it's not true. It's not what's happening. And yeah, a few pages forward, we're talking about the Pima Indians. The Pima Indians are a very interesting group because their range extends into America and Arizona, but also into Mexico. So their range is cut by the border. And the ones in Mexico are way healthier, have low levels of diabetes and heart disease and all that stuff. But the ones in America, which we would blame on them eating the American diet, is terrible. They have, I believe, the highest rates of diabetes in America, of any group in America, and obesity. Yeah, he is going to blame EMF here. The Pima on the Gila River Indian community, this small reservation, are exposed to a greater concentration of EMF fields than any other Indian tribes in North America. As he's saying, in 1987, neither the diet nor lifestyle in the various communities was different enough to account for a 50-fold difference in diabetes rates. Only one environmental factor could account for it. That's EMF. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he's got some good points here. There's some more Indian reserves. When the first electric service came out to the Standing Rock Reservation in the Dakotas in the 1950s, diabetes came to that reservation at the same time. And that Gila River Reservation, where the Pimas lived, is located on the outskirts of Phoenix. Not only is it traversed by high-voltage power lines serving a metropolis of 4 million, but the community operates its own electric utility and its own telecommunications company. Brazil here, interestingly, has grown sugarcane since 1516, the largest producer and consumer of sugar since the 17th century. Yet in the 1870s, when diabetes was beginning to be noticed as a disease of civilization in the United States, that disease was completely unknown in the sugar capital of the world, Rio de Janeiro. Brazil today produces over 30 million metric tons of sugar per year and consumes over 130 pounds of white sugar per person, more than the United States. And do they have the disease? Yet the United States had more than two and a half times the rate of diabetes as Brazil. Here's a good one. Bhutan. Sandwich Sorry, between... Sorry, Brazil doesn't have EMF? They don't have like... Brazil has less EMF exposure, apparently. I find that hard to believe with the amount of cell phone towers in Rio, but... That's they... what I'm saying. It's, it's kind of strange. Nonetheless, here in Bhutan... 
sandwiched between the mountainous borders of India and China, the isolated Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan may be the last country in the world to be electrified. Until the 1960s, Bhutan had no banking system, no national currency, and no roads. Technology was unknown, as there was no electricity at all in most of the country. Diabetes was extremely rare and completely unknown outside the capital. As recently as 2002, fuel wood provided virtually 100% of all non-commercial energy consumption. And of course, when they stopped using wood as a fuel, they stopped having wood ashes left over, which are plant-derived minerals. And of course, they would have been adding those white ashes into their foods, into their breads and patties and stews. The rest of the ashes would have gone into the compost, the animal feeds, back into the fields. So, of course, electrification across the world corresponds with humanity losing one of its most significant mineral supplements. Wood ashes, plant-derived minerals. And of course, we need minerals to have healthy blood sugar. Diabetes can have several nutrient deficiencies involved, and most of them are minerals. Wood consumption was one of the highest, if not the highest, in the world. The country was about to be transformed from near 0% electrification to 100% electrification in little over a decade. The Department of Energy was created on July 1st, 2002, mandated to generate and distribute electricity throughout the kingdom. By 2012, the proportion of rural households actually reached by electricity was about 84%. In 2004, 634 new cases of diabetes were reported in Bhutan. The next year, 944. The year after that, 1470. Next year, 1732. The next year, 2541 with 15 deaths. In 2010, there were 91 deaths, and diabetes was now the eighth most common cause of mortality in the kingdom. Coronary heart disease was number one. Only 66.5% of the population had normal blood sugar. This sudden change in the health of the population, especially the rural population, was being blamed, incredibly, on the traditional Bhutanese diet, which, however, had not changed. Same because they eat a lot of fat-rich foods, that's why people were blaming the sudden increase in diabetes. But they've been eating that way forever. Only one thing has changed so dramatically in Bhutan in the last decade. Electrification and the resulting exposure of the population to electromagnetic fields. And he's tying this back into metabolism. Exposure to EMF interferes with metabolism. And I'm skipping a lot of pages here. But he talks about consistent laboratory findings. That there's a disturbance of carbohydrate metabolism. This is research from all over the world, basically. There was another also experiment with ants. I don't know if you marked that one. It says I, I there was another experiment where uh, with cell phones, Wi-Fi, and ants. When cell phones connected to Wi-Fi were placed next to ants for 30 minutes, it made them appear sick, affecting movement and communication. And it took them between six and eight hours to recover. Several were found dead a few days later. The same large-scale experiment were um, performed using a cordless phone, a Wi-Fi router, a baby monitor, a microwave oven and several Bluetooth devices, all with similar harm harmful effects. Yeah, I believe it. Imagine if that's, those are the devices he was just mentioning. Imagine also the those wireless headphones that everybody's wearing now, even children. You see them wearing those um, AirPods. Yeah, absolutely. I think it affects all life. And he goes into a lot of detail here about how interfering with oxygen and the energy of the cells can ricochet into different diseases. Talking about how diabetes and cancer go hand in hand. They often appear together. Yes, I would agree. Why do you agree with that? 
because they're caused by the same underlying problems, whether it is food or nutrition or poison, the body is being fundamentally burdened by all these things that it's not supposed to nutrient deficiencies, chemicals and other harmful compounds and processed foods, foods cooked incorrectly. Is it because also your body is not processing the sugar the right way? You're also developing cancer. Could that be also another cause? Yes, they're both caused by the same basic things, right? Nutritional deficiencies, processed foods, and other stresses. And stresses could be a very long list, including the stress from EMF, which stresses our cells and causes our cells not to work properly, basically, in numerous ways. But my question is, could cancer be caused because of diabetes? Potentially, yes. But I prefer to say that they they go hand in hand because the same things cause both of them. Okay. I thought it was interesting here that he pointed out that Thomas Edison was diagnosed with diabetes. How can we find it interesting? Because he was surrounded by EMF in his lab. Thomas Edison? Mm -hmm. He also had poor sleep habits and a whole bunch of other things. And you saved a page here writing about enhanced Loran C or E Loran. It's a network being built to ensure the operation of a backup navigation and timing system in the case of GPS satellites failing or their broadcasts are jammed. So I don't really know about this technology, but they're talking about being able to penetrate underground and inside buildings throughout the United States with the system. And this is just one example of a big, scary military project that beams EMF out in every direction, basically, and is the reason why this invisible rainbow title of the book basically encompasses the whole world now, because it's not just your local EMF from the cell phone towers in your town or the radio station or whatever. It's also these huge military projects, HARP, ELORAN, and others. And now he goes into talking about light bulbs and how these so-called energy-efficient light bulbs are basically bad for us. They really are the worst. So even against strong public opposition, governments keep banning incandescent lights, even though we obviously prefer them. Fluorescents give off a harsh light, and they contain mercury vapor, which gives they off really ultraviolet do. radiation when it is energized by high voltage. Got mercury. Every time, every time I walk into like a, a shopping center, I, I feel it, like I, I honestly, which is really strange for me because it's just it's strange that these little things make such a big difference in your body. But for example, if I walk into Macy's or I walk into Walmart and they have these really, really bright lights shining, I, I feel it. I start developing a little bit like anxiety, but I also feel it in my body and I don't even know how to like explain it. So I I, I absolutely believe what he's saying. I agree. Saying even at home, even at home, I don't like putting in like those white lights and stuff like that. I like the... The other ones, what did you what did you say it was called? Incandescent. Yes. And he's saying this increases the consumption of fossil fuels, and that would be a bit of a diversion. But yeah, it's absolutely true. They're not more effective in terms of material. They have more toxic components, such as the mercury. And here, continuing on, all compact fluorescent bulbs and a large percentage of long fluorescent bulbs today are energized with these radio transmitters, which are called electronic ballasts. The frequencies used between 20 and 60 kilohertz are in the ultrasonic hearing range. And these bulbs are a predominant source of ultrasonic radiation in homes and businesses and on power lines throughout the world. And because the electronic ballasts put out so much electrical distortion, today's fluorescent bulbs also emit measurable energy far into the microwave range. Microwave radiation from the fluorescent ballasts. 
and LED bulbs, which are being offered as another substitute for incandescence, are no better. They too give off harsh light, and they contain a variety of toxic metals and require special electronic components that convert the alternating current in our homes to low-voltage direct current. Most often, these components are switch-mode power supplies which operate at the ultrasonic frequencies and are discussed below in connection with computers. And yeah, Sherry, I think we were both a little bit surprised when we were going around the house with the EMF meter and looking at the switches and how anything with a switch, including just the regular switch on the wall, light switch, was giving off radiation all the time. Yeah, we already know, I guess, the outlets are going to be giving out radiation because obviously it's electricity, but yeah. The switches. So here he's talking about how since we use AC alternating current in our power lines, but many of the devices we use require a DC converter, like your laptop, your cell phone charger, anything like that with a little box on it, converts the AC to the DC. And he says one of the problems here is that this pollutes the grid with a wide range of dirty frequencies, basically. Random frequencies. Can you explain that? Because... It leaks back into the grid. It doesn't just convert the AC to DC for use. It also, some of it travels back in. This is just an engineering flaw. And this is why it causes such a huge amount of electrical pollution. Instead of regulating voltage in the traditional way with variable resistors, a switch mode power supply interrupts the current flow tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of times per second. By chopping up the current into slightly more or fewer pieces, these little devices can regulate voltage precisely but they change 50 or 60 cycle current into something very different. The typical switch mode power supply operates at a frequency between 30 and 60 kilohertz. So I don't even understand those details. And unless you're an electrical nerd, you're probably not going to either. But the point is these little DC converters feed back dirty electricity, dirty frequencies into the system. And this is one of the reasons why we have so many extra frequencies bathing us everywhere. Remember, this book is called The Invisible Rainbow. That means a variety of different waves and frequencies coming at us from all angles. It's not just the signal sent out by the cell phone. It's that plus the power lines, plus the dirty electricity in our homes, plus the extremely low frequency fields, ELF, etc. All kinds of waves interfering with us. Here, of course, he's talking about smart meters. He's talking about all kinds of things. But I'm skipping forward to a point that uh, you saved on this page, Sherry. First, they were experimenting with flies here. They proved that the brief exposure to a cell phone was causing the death and degeneration of 50 to 60% of both eggs and their supporting cells at all stages of development. EMF was killing the fly eggs. When the insects were exposed for only two days, six minutes per day to a cell phone, total of 12 minutes here, the number of eggs was reduced by an average of 42%. Even the flies that were exposed for only one minute a day for five days produced 36% fewer offspring than their unexposed cousins. And here's what you saved as well. In later experiments, these scientists have found intensity windows of maximal effect, which means the greatest damage is not always done by the greatest levels of radiation. Holding your cell phone away from your head may actually worsen the damage, he's saying. Because this team with the flies found that there was even fewer offspring when the antenna was held a foot away, reducing the exposure level by a factor of almost 40 than when the antenna was actually touching the vial of flies. So what's the explanation for that? He's saying there's intensity windows of maximal effect. Mm. 
But every experiment, regardless of exposure time, produced cell death in the developing eggs in at least 10% reduction in the number of offspring. And in Belgium, in experiments that any high school student could duplicate, this is the point that I saved here, a cell phone is clearly and obviously dangerous even when it is turned off as long as the battery remains in it. And this is the ant experiment that you were talking about. But let me just comment here that to sell what we call frequency tuning discs, they're a little disc that's embedded with energy frequencies, and we sell them based on a demonstration. We show people how weak they are and how unbalanced they are with a cell phone on them. We take the cell phone away, show them that they're immediately stronger. That gets them interested. Then we put the cell phone back and we put a frequency tuning disc on their body as well or under their shoe. And we show them that now they're just as strong or even stronger than they were without the cell phone on them. So it's counteracting some of those frequencies. And I bring this up because one time I did the uh, test by accident on my friend who had his cell phone turned off. And we realized that the, the muscle test, the balance test, the strength test worked the exact same. We didn't know his phone was off. It worked the exact same. So I retried that with a few other people as well and found the exact same thing. That it doesn't matter if your cell phone is even turned on. It will actually make you weaker by any strength or balance test that you want to throw at it. And the frequency tuning disc will still work to counteract that. So I had a hard time explaining that because it it's not like it's giving out any power. It's not uh, giving out a cell phone signal or a data signal or anything like that. This is just like the negative energy trapped in the metals of the cell phone itself. It's like it's working as an anti-frequency tuning disc, basically, to me. But yeah, here she brought thousands of ants into her laboratory at the Free University of Brussels, placed an older model flip phone under the colonies where they could neither see nor smell it and simply watch them walk. When the cell phone contained no battery, it affected the ants not at all. Neither did the battery alone. But as soon as the battery was placed in the phone... Even though it was still turned off, the ant's helter-skelter movements became radically disturbed. The little creatures darted back and forth with increased vigor, as if trying to escape an enemy they could not see. The rate at which they changed directions, their angular speed, increased by 80%. When the phone was then put into standby mode, they changed directions even more. Then they turned the phone on. Within two to three seconds, the insects visibly slowed down. You know, then you got the ants that are paralyzed that you told us about. And here, the experimental results, as well as of other experiments, show that microwave exposure, even for just a few minutes per day and only for a few days, at exposure levels encountered in our everyday environment, is maybe the most intense modern environmental stress factor compared to other environmental stress factors tested so far, like starvation, heat, chemicals, electric or magnetic fields. So they're saying it's the microwave fields, not just the electric or magnetic fields. That's the stuff that's going to show up on your EMF meter that you buy on Amazon. You're not going to be measuring the microwave fields. Only a couple more points left here. This is where they're talking about trees and forests being affected by EMF near antennas and stuff. And the point that I saved was within 10 years of exposure to the directional energy, he wrote, the seemingly minute 0.1 watts received by the group of trees adds up to about 8.8 .8 kilowatt hours. That much electricity, he calculated, is sufficient to create 2,000 liters of hydrogen gas within the soil by electrolytic splitting of water. This would acidify the soil, even without the trace of acid rain. And when they considered that radar installations sometimes broadcast not a few watts, but a few million watts, he realized that such an installation could acidify a phenomenal amount of soil. 
So he's blaming EMF for acidifying the soil, basically, by creating hydrogen ions in the soil. And that would be one of the explanations of why trees are affected by EMF. Don't trees kind of like block EMF a little bit, though? They do absorb. And here they were talking about a radar system in Latvia. And from the beginning, there was a bunch of complaints from local residents that the radiation was destroying their health, their crops, their animals, and their forests. And after 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, scientists were able to put these claims to the tests, did a bunch of field studies. School children in the area had impaired motor function, memory, and attention. Children who lived directly exposed to the radar on one slope of the valley had worse memories than children who lived further away. The entire population had higher white cell counts and suffered from more headaches and sleep disturbances than a more distant community. And the radiation even appeared to have impacted human reproduction, affecting the sex ratio of the community. Fewer boys than girls had been born during the early years of the radar. The effects on farm animals and wildlife were just as obvious. Blood samples were drawn from cows that grazed on land in front of the radar station. Chromosome damage was found in more than half. All of the trees sampled without exception had laid down much thinner growth rings beginning precisely in 1971 when the radar installation was constructed and continuing throughout the period of operation of the radars. The average growth rings were half as wide as before the radars were constructed. And there was other effects on life in the area. Another example here in Poland in the extensive pine forests for 17 years from 1974 to 1991 stood a long wave radio antenna, one of the most powerful radio stations in the world. And for those 17 years, villagers complained that their health was being destroyed. In 1991, a government study proved them right. They collected blood samples. 68% of the people had abnormally high levels of cortisol, a stress hormone. 42% had hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. 30% had elevated thyroid, hyperthyroid. 32% had high cholesterol. 32% had abnormally high red blood cell counts. 58% had disturbed electrolytes. They tended to have high calcium, sodium, and potassium levels and low phosphorus. And 41% also had elevated platelets, indicating overstimulation of their bone marrow. And in 1991, this structure fell down. They retested the subjects. They still had abnormal glucose and red blood cell counts. But all of the electrolyte levels and all of the thyroid levels and all of the cortisol levels, without exception, were now completely normal. And we're almost done here, Sherry, but we should tell the story of what we've done recently here because we recently bought a hydrogen water machine. And before we did that, we went and got blood tests done, even though both of us are very healthy overall, wanted to see what was up. And you know, obviously, I always complain when I'm in the city, especially when I'm down there in Texas. I just don't feel right. I don't know what it is. We've got all this EMF stuff. We've collected even more since I've been complaining about it in Houston. We got the grounding blanket for the bed which did help quite a bit. But still, when we went to get our blood tested, it showed that I basically had signs of dehydration, which blew me away because I'm the most hydrated guy you'll ever meet. And I'm drinking liquids all day. I have one coffee a day, not a huge deal. I have lots of supplements, lots of electrolytes, not drinking, again, coffee, energy drinks, alcohol, things that dehydrate me, blew me away that I was dehydrated. And when we redid the blood tests after a few weeks on the hydrogen water, those markers had changed. They'd, they'd improved. There was only one that was like one point low still, but the other ones had improved. So I definitely think there's something to this as well. 
that the electrolyte levels of these people in Poland, when the radio tower basically fell down, all of their electrolyte levels went back to normal and their cortisol levels back to normal. And there's more examples here, more communities next to towers and radio stations. You marked a point here. A farmer about 50 years old told me that two weeks after the transmitter was switched off, he slept through the whole night for the first time in his life. And he had a story here. It is wonderful to see. He remarked how quickly the forests, which were treated with radiation, are recovering now. The rate of growth, I think, is twice the growth of years past. The young trees are also growing up straight as a dart and don't try and flee in a direction away from the transmitter. And since this uh, tower here, after a planned termination, they conducted a before and after sleep study on 54 subjects. Sleep quality improved after the shutdown, but melatonin levels rebounded just as they had in the cows. Both cows and humans, their melatonin levels went back to normal after the transmitter was taken down. During the week after the shutdown, melatonin levels in the people who lived closest to the antennas rose by one and a half and sixfold. And yeah, he talks about forests being defoliated all over the world, basically. And he's talking about some other mega projects here to further electrify the world and how many people think this is a good thing, but he thinks otherwise. And I agree. And that was actually the last point that I saved in this book. Although this is one of those books where you really could save something on every page. There's so much. It's jam full of information. I highly recommend it. Sherry, what do you think? Anything else to add to this? Not really. I mean, it's it's a very illuminating book in terms of like, well, even if you don't agree with everything that's in there, there's a lot of things that will kind of change your mind about about the stuff that you know on an everyday basis type of thing. So what it told me was, I think that our biggest problem here at this point is twofold. First of all, we've got ourselves. Because like in the episode I did recently with Matt from Safeguard Solutions, who goes into other people's homes and finds sources of EMF for them and mitigates it. That's his business. He told me that the worst culprits in the home are the Wi-Fi router first. And second, all the devices that we bring in, we invite them in. Talking about your microwave and your car door opener and your thermostat, all of which talk to each other or you can set with your phone or whatever. All these things giving out all these different Bluetooth signals and other wireless signals. These are appliances and, and things of convenience that we've brought into our home. That's one big, big part of the problem. If you keep a cell phone on you, you are irradiating yourself. These are our own choices. But the other half of the problem is coming from above, so to speak. It's coming from the government. The military being one of the biggest sources of waste in our society. Waste of money, waste of human potential, waste of technology. One of these things that they're doing is wasting our health by pumping all this EMF into the atmosphere with these gigantic military projects, you know, radar that can see across the world and so on and send beams out into uh, the farthest reaches of the atmosphere and you know, every inch of the world covered by military EMF, not household EMF, not industrial EMF, not power lines and cell phones. It's radar that's meant to carry over every inch of the world. So as always, I see this as one less reason to support the government. I know one person isn't going to be able to shut down the government, but we keep paying these people. What do they do with the money? They do wars, right? They give billions upon billions to Ukraine and Israel to kill innocent people, or maybe even a completely fake war in Ukraine. Who knows? 
trillion dollars lost here, 1.5 trillion lost there. And one of the things they love to spend our money on is gigantic EMF installations that poisons the atmosphere with all sorts of frequencies. This so-called invisible rainbow, much of it is created by the military. I'm not allowed to tell you here to not pay taxes, but hey, this is one thing your tax dollars are paying for. And in that sense, I don't think the problem is going to go away unless there is massive political changes, because we can all stop using our cell phones today and it really not change the overall EMF environment because so much of it is coming from these major sources, major power installations, gigantic cell phone towers, although they might be turned off if everyone stops paying, and military installations. What do you think, Cher? You think we can stop the military from polluting us with EMF? Well, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But um, if there was a miracle, and yes, we didn't have the military things bombarding us, I guess. Yeah, definitely. But that's never going to happen. Well, on other episodes, we've talked more about the solutions, especially that episode there with Mike from Safeguard Solutions. But this episode, I think we are done here. We have successfully gone through the points we saved in the Invisible Rainbow. I want to thank everybody for being here with us, as always. Thank you, of course, Sherry, for joining me. Appreciate everybody. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to do a podcast with you. I hope so. Once again, you can find everything that we do on notusbooks.org, all the books that I've written and helped publish free audiobook versions of my books an archive of the podcast there many episodes are not actually posted here to podcast land and they might never be so we've got some secret episodes there from back before the podcast was pulled the first time slowly putting more videos on the archive as well again you can download those archive episodes for free and there's a special treat there at the end so if you are listening on the archive right now stick around after i sign out special treat for you you can support this podcast on Patreon if you like. Big thank you once again to the patrons. No company is paying us to read ads here. Everyone who helps as a guest or helps edit, all of us do this 100% voluntarily. So anything does help. It really does go a long way. Get a lot of great feedback about this podcast. And if you do want to support it directly right now, Patreon is the only way. Patreon.com slash the real not us. And that link and all the others, of course, will be in the description of this podcast. So with that said, thank you once again. Stay healthy, my friends. Until next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.